Before I get into the sermon, I want to I want to say something real quick. If there's a couple couple more children in the room than normal, if your if your baby is screaming or making noise, that is okay. Do not feel like you need to step out because uh, of screaming. One of the ways in which the church can tell a different story by being a distinct and different community to the world is by the way we treat children. The, the world around us looks at children and sees them as an inconvenience to the life that I want. One of the ways that we can tell a different story is by saying children are not an inconvenience to me. And so it's okay. You're welcome to step out, but don't feel like you need to step out. They're not a burden to any of us. Okay. As you said, we are in a series uh, in the book of Exodus, Exodus being about Israel being delivered from slavery in Egypt. And this week we hit what is probably, probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible, the Ten Commandments, which has been the basis for laws. But the Ten Commandments in the text, in the original Exodus was written in Hebrew, we translate it to English. In the original Hebrew, it was called Ten Words, not Ten Commandments, but Ten Words. And so I'm going to reference them as Ten Words because that will become important later on. But let me start with this question. Here's the question. How many of you, show of hands, have ever heard this? I'm interested in Christianity. I'm interested in Jesus. I like some of what he has to say, but I just don't like the church. Show of hands. I've said it. It's okay. It's safe space. Or my biggest barrier in a moment of honesty, my biggest barrier to believing in Christ is Christians. I've said that one too. One reason, not the only reason, but one reason for that, I believe, is that we don't know how to read these 10 words, and therefore we don't know how to live these 10 words. That to read them simply as a series of do's and don'ts, a set of moral instruction, is to limit what they are intended to be seen as. They are so, so, so much more than simple moral instruction. They are obviously moral instruction, but they are so much more than that. And I'm praying this morning that my limitations as a teacher won't keep us from seeing the depth of what these 10 words are. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to answer three questions. Why were they given? How do we read them? How do we live them? It's pretty simple. Why were they given? How do we read them? How do we live them? And hopefully through that, we will see that they are so much more than simple morality or the basis of law. And so let's start with why were they given in verse 1? Verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay, so right out of the gate, it says, and God spoke all these words, saying, this is the first time where Israelites hear the voice of God. This is the only time in Exodus where, where God doesn't go through a mediator, through Moses, to speak to the nation of Israel. This is them hearing what he has to say, and when he speaks, he says, I am the Lord your God. Now, we've spent the last few weeks trying to really emphasize and drill down on that when you see the Lord, that underneath that in the, in the Greek text, I'm sorry, not Greek, the Hebrew text is Yahweh, that where the Lord is a title, Yahweh is a name, that it's a personal name. It's the name of God, the name of God who comes near to deliver his people, that when it says, I am the Lord your God, when it says, I am Yahweh, that this is an expression of relationship, that what's to follow these 10 words, these are not a series of distant, cold directives. They are an expression of an existing relationship a relationship with a God 
that brought you, delivered you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It says, I am the one who delivered you. And as we've seen throughout the book of Exodus, you've been delivered to be a holy and distinct people. To be a holy, distinct people, a nation unlike the other nations. And here's the key to understanding. We cannot rightly understand what's to come if we don't see this right out of the gate. These 10 words are in response to God's deliverance, not how you earn God's deliverance. So here's what did not happen. God did not come to Israel while they were captives in Egypt and say, hey, listen, Israelites, here's a deal I've got for you. I'm going to give you a set of 10 instructions. And if you can keep these 10 instructions, you know, to a degree that I'm satisfied with, I will then deliver you out of Egypt. If you can't, I'm real sorry about your bad luck. God came and delivered them out of Egypt, split the sea, fed them directly from heaven with bread, and then, and then gave them a set of 10 words, 10 instructions on how to live as his redeemed people. They are in response to what God has done, not how you earn what God might do. They are an expression of a relationship with a God who has delivered you. So how then do we read them? Well, they're broken into two categories. Five, what we call vertical, and five, horizontal. So the vertical are with God and parents, so authorities over us, and then horizontal, how we relate to everyone else, which is where, God, where when Jesus said, love God, love neighbor, that's the division where that came from. And so I'm going to read through the first five, explain them, and then the second five, explain them. And I'm going to do it quickly because what we're hoping is that we can see the thread that runs through the first five and the thread that runs through the second five, and then we might be able to apply that thread. So here's the first one. Here's the first word. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, do you see the word have in there? You shall have no other gods before me. The, the Hebrew, there is no verb to have. It just doesn't exist. There is no to have. It's most literally, there shall not be to you. There shall not be to you other gods before me. And that, that's, the distinction is subtle, but it's significant. Because that language is used in the context of other intimate relationships, particularly a spouse. And so the illustration goes like this. I'm married to my wife, Amanda. And because I'm married to Amanda, it's not only that I'm not to have another spouse, it's that I'm to have no other women who are women to me like my wife is to me. It's not just I have one wife, therefore I'm not to have a second wife. It's because I have a wife. I am not to blend my heart's affection for my wife with my heart's affection for any other woman. My heart's affection, the way it is to be set on my wife, is to be utterly distinct from every other woman out there. I'm not only not supposed to have two wives, it's that I don't blend my heart for my wife with a heart like that for other women. When he's saying, you shall have no other gods before me, it's not only you don't have me and then go and have the God of this other nation and have two gods, it's that you don't blend your worship of me with the worship of any other God. Your heart is to be singularly devoted to me as your God. No other gods. None. Second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity 
of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Obviously, we could spend an hour and a half talking about this one in particular, but for right now, what I want you to see is that this is not a restriction on art, a carved image. This is not God trying to say you shouldn't be making any kind of images ever. This is a command to avoid cultic practice that the wooden images that they believed that God was present in, that they would carve those and then they would use, use those to pray to and worship to in cultic worship. And this is God saying, listen, I, I am the God who has just split the sea and led you right through it. I, I am the God who sent 10 plagues. I am the God who fed you directly from heaven. You don't come and worship me the way that they worship their gods. You don't worship me as if I could fit in some little carved image of something. I am the God over all of creation. I am not the God who fix, fits in a tiny little wooden image. Do not worship me the way that they worship their gods. Don't blend your worship of me with cultic worship. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. He's saying, listen, you, you, you don't use the name Yahweh irreverently, disrespectfully, or in cultic magic. Why? My name is sacred, and you should treat it that way. The name Yahweh is a sacred name. You, you treat it that way. Don't speak of my name as if it is disconnected from my power, my person, or my presence. You have just seen what my name is capable of doing. Don't speak of it as if you don't believe that. Four. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Resting on the seventh day, this is flowing out of creation. This is flowing out of the created order where God created in six days and then rested on one. And this would have been completely unique in the ancient world. You will not be able to find a nation who lived like this, a nation who said, six days I work, one day I rest. This was another command to be a distinct people and to live like a distinct people. This is another command to say, this is how the nations live. Now, this is how you live. You be distinct from all other nations. Number five, the last of the vertical. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, and that the Lord your God is giving you. So one of the reasons that we group this with the first five is that the name Yahweh is in it. The Lord your God is giving you. The second five don't have the name of God in them. But I'm going to skip this one for now. We'll come back to it in a minute. But here's what I want us to see out of these first five. If God were with the Israelites and just trying to give a summary statement of them to the people of Israel, I think the summary statement would go a bit like this. It would say, I, Israel, I, I saw you in Egypt. I saw you in your slavery. I had compassion for you. I didn't leave you. I didn't abandon you. I love you. I am with you. I sent 10 plagues. I split the sea. I fed you bread directly from heaven. Now go and worship me in a way that shows that I am unlike any other God out there. Go. Go and worship me in a way that shows I am unlike any other God out there. 
out of your singular devotion to me. Worship me in a way that shows I'm, I'm not a petty little God like the gods of the other nations. Like I am the sovereign God over the world who can split seas, who can rain bread from heaven. Worship me in a way that shows I am unlike any other God. Now, the horizontal. Starts out like this. You shall not murder. The word translated murder here, it's really got a broader range of meaning than simply murder. It includes causing death through carelessness and negligence. The point being that it's more holistic than simply actively taking life. The word has a broader range of meaning to it, which is why there was a document written in the 1600s. It's called the Westminster Catechism, which is essentially, it might be a weird word to a lot of us, but it's a really beautiful thing written about Christian theology and Christian living. It gives a lot of holistic application to these, to these ten. Their application of you shall not murder included things like preserving life for everyone, avoiding anything that would lead to unjust taking of life, provide just defense against violence, protecting and defending the innocent, and not withholding the means of preserving life. The point being this, you shall not murder is not just about being anti-death. It's about being pro-life in all of its forms. It's much more than just being uh, anti-death. It's about being pro-life in all of its forms, which is why Sojourn, when we use the term pro-life, we pray that we use it holistically because it absolutely includes justice and life for the unborn, but we also want to be a community where it means justice and life for all, from the womb to the grave. It's a holistic term. It doesn't just mean being anti-death. It means being pro-life in all of its forms. Words 7 through 10, I'm going to put together. They go with 6, but I I want it to be more easy to see, or not more easy, uh, more clear that we would see the, the thread that runs through them. It goes, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not cover your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. See, the thread, as one commentator put it, with the sixth one is this, that these are the baseline expectations for being and living as a just society. To not sleep with someone's wife, to not steal from someone, to not lie in court, to not set your heart on what your neighbor has. These are the baseline expectations for being a just society. Why would God include baseline expectations for how to live as a just society in these 10 words? Well, here's why. I just delivered you, Israel, out of the unjust treatment in Egypt. Now, because I have delivered you from the injustice you experienced in Egypt out of the overflow of your worship for me, go and live as a just society, extending my justice out into the world. And so if God were to summarize these horizontal words for Israel, I think it would go like this. I saw you in Egypt, in your slavery, and I didn't leave you there. I didn't abandon you, Israel. I love you. I am with you. I sent ten plagues. I split a sea and I fed you directly from heaven. Now, out of the overflow of your worship for me, live in a way that shows your God is a just God unlike any other God out there. Live in a way that shows I am a just God in a world of unjust gods. Go. 
Go, Israel, and be an agent of my justice in the world. And when we put them together, here's what we see. We see the vertical flows into the horizontal, that being a people of justice flows from worshiping a God of justice. And that Israel was delivered out of Egypt to be to be a nation of people who worshiped God alone, and out of that worship they would be agents of justice. But I mentioned earlier that the fifth commandment uh, we would come back to. Well, here, here's why we skipped it. The, the fifth word was the only word that came with a promise. Did you catch that? Here was the promise. Honor your father and your mother, and if you do, you will live long in the land. You'll live long in the land. Israel, I am leading you from Egypt into this promised land, this beautiful land flowing with all that you could ever want. And if, Israel, you honor your father and your mother, you will live long in that land. But here's the thing. That never really happened for Israel. It never really happened. There never was a long life in that land. This ended up being an unfulfilled promise. And the reason it was an unfulfilled promise is because as you read through the story of Israel, here's how it reads. It reads like a disobedient son, a son who did not honor his father. The story of Israel is a story of people who worshiped other gods, who made images of gods in worship, of people who exploited the poor. The story of Israel is the story of a disobedient son. This was an unfulfilled promise because the story of Israel is the story of of the disobedient son, and it would remain unfulfilled until the obedient son came. The son who John described as what? The Word. The Word. The Word who was flesh and who dwelt among us. The Word who came to obey all ten words. The Word who came as God the Son to glorify and obey God the Father, not to have other gods the Son who came to be the image of God, not to make images of God, to be the living embodiment of God's name, the true I am, to not just honor the Sabbath, but to be the true Sabbath, the place of eternal rest, to be the obedient Son who honored His Father all the way to the cross, to work for the poor and the marginalized on His way to the cross where He was murdered for us. He came as the Word who didn't take advantage of someone else's bride. He laid down His life for His own. He is the Word who doesn't steal but gives eternal riches. Jesus is the Word who was lied about in a court on the way to the cross. Jesus is the Word who doesn't covet his neighbor's house. He is the one who through his crucifixion and resurrection makes an eternal home for people who do. The ten words. The ten words in Exodus 20 that are about him. The one word who became flesh to fulfill all ten for you and for me, which is why Jesus, when he was sitting with some Jewish leaders, he said to them when he was summarizing Moses, which would include these ten words, for if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. These ten words are about him. Everything in these ten words, the commands, the promise, the land, it's all the story of him, the story of him who delivers from the true Egypt, sin and death, and to the promised land, the true promised land. Which, do you know where the promise of long life in the land gets fulfilled? It gets fulfilled in Christ, but not simply in Christ. It gets fulfilled as a new creation in Christ. Let me try to explain that. Have you ever wondered why there are 10? Why, why 10? I mean, God could have given 5, 50, 500, 5,000 even. Why 10? Here's why I think there are 10. In Genesis 1, there are 10 words. 
10 places where it says, and God said. And so we have 10 words in creation, and now we have 10 words at Mount Sinai. These 10 words at Mount Sinai are how life would have been had Genesis 3 never happened. Had Genesis 3 never happened, had sin never entered the world, had the destruction that came with sin never happened, these 10 words at Sinai are how the world would have been. And when they're framed in that story, here's how the narrative of the Bible goes. We have creation in Genesis 1 and 2. We have decreation in Genesis 3, where it all goes sideways. And then we have the spiraling of decreation making its way through the world until decreation gets displayed and climaxes in these 10 plagues. But then, in these 10 words, in these 10 words from God to Israel on Sinai, we get how Israel is to live as a recreated people and be agents of recreation in a decreating world. But these 10 words that they were unable to live until Jesus the Word came and lived them for them, who on the cross would experience the climax of a decreated world but who in his resurrection would usher in the new creation. These 10 words, sojourn, are about so much more than simple moral do's and don'ts. They are about living as the new creation, breaking into a decreating world. They are about living as the new creation. And so when we ask, what does it look like to live them? Well, for starters, it means that when you read verses like 2 Corinthians 5, That says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It certainly means that you have an old life and a new life, but man, does it mean so much more than that. It's so much more rich and cosmic than that. It means that your old life was part of decreation falling apart in the world, but your new life in Christ is part of the new creation breaking in. It means that you are now a living embodiment. This is what you, the church, are. You are a living embodiment of a God who looked down in Israel on Egypt. I didn't say that right. On Israel in Egypt with compassion, who delivered them from injustice and said, now go with my compassion, be agents of my justice in the world. Be agents of my justice in the world. And so what does it mean to be this living embodiment of the new creation breaking in? It means that there are vertical and horizontal words that we need to hear as well. We need to hear them as words to us. It means that we need you to hear God saying to you, listen, I I saw you. I saw you in your slavery to sin, and I didn't leave you there. I didn't abandon you. I love you. I am with you. I, I am here for you. I didn't just send plagues. I sent my son. I didn't just split a sea. It was my son who was torn in two on a cross, and through his resurrection, I am still feeding you directly from heaven. I need to hear these words for you. And when that sinks in, you then can go and worship him in a way that shows that he is full of truth and grace, compassion and justice. And that can recalibrate the way that you see the world. That vertical flowing into horizontal, it can recalibrate the way that you see the world, the way that you see being part of the new creation breaking in. We can be a community that fights for the unborn and the mom who thinks she has no other choice at the same time. It means that you can value the rule of law and have compassion for people at the border at the same time. It means we don't have to dichotomize life. These can coexist at the same time out of vertical flowing into the horizontal. 
It means that we can live and work for the world that we all want. There is a world that we all want, a world that we got a glimpse of in Genesis 1 and 2, a world that the Bible will portray and describe when the story comes to an end, and we get to be the living embodiment of that world, and we get to be it today. These 10 words are about so much more, so much more than moral do's and don'ts. They are about so much more, so, so much more than simply a set of laws. They are about living as the new creation living as the new creation breaking into a decreating world, working for the shalom of all, working for the good of humanity. They are about living as the new creation. Sojourn, if we want to be a persuasive community, if we want to be a persuasive community, a community that doesn't just say what's right and wrong, but lives in such a way that we just compellingly put it on display, here's what it means. It means seeing these 10 words, living these 10 words in such a way that we lift them out of simple moral do's and don'ts into their new creation narrative, and then we go and live as a new created, recreated people in a decreating world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you uh, would let us see. Let us see that these 10 words out of Exodus are part of the larger story of what you're doing, the larger story of you recreating the world, the larger story of you bringing your justice and your compassion to the world. I pray that we would see that, that we would live that, that these would recalibrate the way that we see the world. I pray that you would feel so limited on the amount of time we had today for these 10 words. I pray that you would just amplify it in our hearts, amplify these words that we are able to speak about your 10 words, and that you would make this kind of community this community who, who isn't transactional, who worships a God of compassion and justice, love and truth, make us those kinds of people that we would live and worship in such a way that we show that you are like no other God. You are the great I am. We pray this to the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit.